Section 60 of For the Term of His Natural Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Ashworth. For the Term of His Natural Life by Marcus Clarke. Book 4, Chapter 4. Extracted from the Diary of the Reverend James North. August the 24th. There has been but one entry in my journal since the 30th of June, that which records the advent of our new commandant, who, as I expected, is Captain Maurice Frere. So great have been the changes which have taken place that I scarcely know how to record them. Captain Frere has realised my worst anticipations. He is brutal, vindictive, and domineering. His knowledge of prisons and prisoners gives him an advantage over Burgess, otherwise he much resembles that murderous animal. He has but one thought, to keep the prisoners in subjection. So long as the island is quiet, he cares not whether the men live or die. I was sent down here to keep order, said he to me, a few days after his arrival, and by God, sir, I'll do it. He has done it, I must admit, but at a cost of a legacy of hatred to himself that he may some day regret to have earned. He has organised three parties of police. One patrols the fields, one is on guard at stores and public buildings, and the third is employed as a detective force. There are two hundred soldiers on the island, and the officer in charge, Captain McNab, has been induced by Frere to increase their duties in many ways. The cords of discipline are suddenly drawn tight. For the disorder which prevailed when I landed, Frere has substituted a sudden and excessive rigour. Any officer found giving the smallest piece of tobacco to a prisoner is liable to removal from the island. The tobacco which grows wild has been rooted up and destroyed lest the men should obtain a leaf of it. The privilege of having a pannikin of hot water when the gangs came in from field labour in the evening has been withdrawn. The shepherds, hut-keepers, and all other prisoners, whether at the stations of Longridge or the Cascades, where the English convicts are stationed, are forbidden to keep a parrot or any other bird. The plaiting of straw hats during the prisoners' leisure hours is also prohibited. At the settlement where the old hands are located, railed boundaries have been erected, beyond which no prisoner must pass unless to work. Two days ago, Job Dodd, a negro, let his jacket fall over the boundary rails, crossed them to recover it, and was severely flogged. The floggings are hideously frequent. On flogging mornings I have seen the ground where the men stood at the triangle saturated with blood, as if a bucket of blood had been spilled on it, covering a space three feet in diameter, and running out in various directions, in little streams two or three feet long. At the same time, let me say, with that strict justice, I force myself to mete out to those whom I dislike, that the island is in a condition of abject submission. There is not much chance of mutiny. The men go to their work without a murmur, and slink to their dormitories like whipped hounds to kennel. The jails and solitary cells are crowded with prisoners, and each day sees fresh sentences for fresh crimes. It is crime here to do anything but live. The method by which Captain Frere has brought about this repose of desolation is characteristic of him. He sets every man as a spy upon his neighbour awes the more daring into obedience by the display of a ruffianism more outrageous than their own, and raising the worst scoundrels in the place to office, compels them to find cases for punishment. Perfidy is rewarded. 
It has been made part of a convict policeman's duty to search a fellow prisoner anywhere and at any time. This searching is often conducted in a wantonly rough and disgusting manner, and if resistance be offered, the man resisting can be knocked down by a blow from the searcher's bludgeon. Inquisitorial vigilance and indiscriminating harshness prevail everywhere, and the lives of hundreds of prisoners are reduced to a continual agony of terror and self-loathing. It is impossible, Captain Frere, said I one day, during the initiation of this system, to think that these villains whom you have made constables will do their duty. He replied, They must do their duty. If they are indulgent to the prisoners, they know I shall flog them. If they do what I tell them, they'll make themselves so hated that they'd have their own father up to the triangles to save themselves being sent back to the ranks. You treat them, then, like slave-keepers of a wild beast den. They must flog the animals to avoid being flogged themselves. Aye, said he with his coarse laugh, and having once flogged them, they'd do anything rather than be put in the cage, don't you see? It is horrible to think of this sort of logic being used by a man who has a wife and friends and enemies. It is the logic that the keeper of the tormented would use, I should think. I'm sick unto death of the place. It makes me an unbeliever in the social charities. It takes out of penal science anything it may possess of nobility or worth. It is cruel, debasing, inhuman. August the 26th. Saw Rufus Dawes again today. His usual bearing is ostentatiously rough and brutal. He has sunk to a depth of self-abasement in which he takes a delight in his degradation. This condition is one familiar to me. He is working in the chain-gang to which Hankey was made sub-overseer. Blind Mooney, an ophthalmic prisoner, who was removed from the gang to hospital, told me that there was a plot to murder Hankey, but that Dawes, to whom he had shown some kindness, had prevented it. I saw Hankey and told him of this, asking him if he had been aware of the plot. He said no, falling into a great tremble. Major Pratt promised me a removal, said he. I expected it would come to this. I asked him why Dawes defended him, and after some trouble he told me, exacting from me a promise that I would not acquaint the Commandant. It seems that one morning last week Hankey had gone up to Captain Frere's house with a return from Troke, and coming back through the garden had plucked a flower. Dawes had asked him for this flower, offering two days' rations for it. Hankey, who is not a bad-hearted man, gave him the sprig. There were tears in his eyes as he took it, said he. There must be some way to get at this man's heart, bad as he seems to be. August the 28th. Hankey was murdered yesterday. He applied to be removed from the jail gang, but Frere refused. I never let my men funk, he said. If they threaten to murder you, I'll keep you there another month in spite of them. Someone who overheard this reported it to the gang, and they set upon the unfortunate jailer yesterday, and beat his brains out with their shovels. Troke says that the wretch who was foremost cried, There's for you, and if your master don't take care, he'll get served the same one of these days. The gang were employed at building a reef in the sea, and were working up to their armpits in water. Hanky fell into the surf, and never moved after the first blow. I saw the gang, and Dawes said, It was Frere's fault. He should have let the man go. I am surprised you did not interfere, said I. I did all I could, was the man's answer. What's a life more or less here? 
This occurrence has spread consternation among the overseers, and they have addressed a round robin to the commandant, praying to be relieved from their positions. The way Frere has dealt with this petition is characteristic of him, and fills me at once with admiration and disgust. He came down with it in his hand to the jail gang, walked into the yard, shut the gate, and said, I've just got this from my overseers. They say they're afraid you'll murder them as you murdered Hanky. Now if you want to murder, murder me. Here I am. Step out, one of you. All this, said in a tone of the most galling contempt, did not move them. I saw a dozen pairs of eyes flash hatred, but the bulldog courage of the man overawed them here, as I am told it had done in Sydney. It would have been easy to kill him, then and there, and his death, I am told, is sworn among them, but no one raised a finger. The only man who moved was Rufus Dawes, and he checked himself instantly. Frere, with a recklessness of which I did not think him capable, stepped up to this terror of the prison, and ran his hands lightly down his sides, as is the custom with constables when searching a man. Dawes, who is of a fierce temper, turned crimson at this, and I thought would have struck him, but he did not. Frere then, still unarmed and alone, proceeded to the man, saying, Do you think of bolting again, Dawes? Have you made any more boats? You devil, said the chained man, in a voice pregnant with such weight of unborn murder, that the gang winced. You'll find me one, said Frere, with a laugh and turning to me, continued in the same jesting tone, "'There's a penitent for you, Mr. North. Try your hand on him.' I was speechless at his audacity, and must have shown my disgust in my face, for he coloured slightly, and as we were leaving the yard he endeavoured to excuse himself by saying that it was no use preaching to stones, and such doubly dyed villains as this Dawes were past hope. "'I know the ruffian of old,' said he. He came out in the ship from England with me and tried to raise a mutiny on board. He was the man who nearly murdered my wife. He has never been out of irons, except then and when he escaped, for the last eighteen years, and as he's three life sentences, he's like to die in em. A monstrous wretch and criminal, evidently, and yet I feel a strange sympathy with this outcast. End of Book 4, Chapter 4